0: Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. It is uh, so wonderful to see all of you and to be together with you this morning. My name is Phil Letizia, and I'm the assistant pastor here at the church. And uh, just about a month old or so in our first few weeks here. And I just want to take the time to say thank you to all of you on behalf of uh, myself and my wife Jenny and our two kids uh, for your hospitality and your welcome to us. You've been so wonderful. Uh, As we're meeting everybody's names, and uh, if I ask your name a couple of times over the span of a month, just give me a little grace. Uh, We'll get there as we uh, get to know one another. But we do want to thank you, and we are truly excited to be here with you in what, uh, from all that I can tell, is a really thrilling season in the life of this church. And so we're excited to be a part of it. Uh, I don't know how most of you handle transitions, big transitions in your life. Uh, Maybe you can think back uh, when you took that first significant job in your life or maybe when you uh, left home and went away to college or left home for the first time. I was talking with someone recently uh, who was uh, telling me about when they left for college and uh, after uh, the days of travel and packing and unpacking and all the emotional goodbyes with parents, they said they just crashed. And they woke up the next morning and for a brief moment, they didn't know where they were. They just completely forgot where they were, who they were. And then it finally dawned on them, oh yeah, that's right. This is my life now. This is where I am. This is who I am. And then the following question came, how am I going to figure out how to do this? Right. Big transitions in life Uh, Bring us to that type of place to ask those types of questions. Who am I? Where am I? Where am I going? What are my priorities? How am I going to live life now? Our family is going through a bit of that kind of transition right now. And we're continuing this morning in our series through this New Testament letter of 1 Peter uh, called Living God's Way, And what we're finding here actually is that these new Christians that the Apostle Peter is writing to are asking the same questions. Who am I? Where am I? Now that I'm a Christian, how am I supposed to live? Many of them were new to Christianity. Many of them were finding themselves in new places, new towns, new cities. And they're asking, what do we do now? How do we live as Christians in this world around us and some of you may be here this morning and maybe you don't call yourself a christian maybe you're here with a friend or you're uh, investigating what it means to follow jesus and seeing if it is credible or not and i know just in a few weeks of being here at bbcc that uh, we strive to be a church uh, where you can feel safe to process what that means to believe that you can come and learn and figure out if this is true, and we hope that it would be a safe place for you to do that. But our passage this morning, I think, will help. This passage where Peter is talking about, really striking at the heart of what it means to follow Jesus, what it should look like, how we are to live as Christians in the world. And what Peter says is that we are meant to live differently. Why? Because we are different. As Christians, we are different. We're meant to live with integrity because we are the people of God. And Pastor Dudley has been guiding us to this point the last two weeks. In fact, in many ways, this passage, starting in chapter 2, verse 11, is kind of a turning point in this letter. The first part of the letter, which we've been looking at these past two weeks, is kind of giving us the theological depth that we need, right? That because we have hope and a future secured in Christ, we have a new identity. And that new identity is that we are children of God, that we are accepted by God, we are valuable to him, that we're forgiven of our sins, And so from there, throughout the rest of the letter, Peter then turns to the very practical matters of life. Because we have this new identity, because we have this secured hope and future, we now live differently. And I know for some of you, um, it's the very fact that so many Christians don't seem to live differently, which is the hang-up. When it comes to following Jesus or considering Christianity all together, uh, some of you may know uh, Jake Tapper, who's uh, one of the lead anchors on CNN. And this week he tweeted something very interesting. He wrote this I'll say he wrote, he tweeted, If your Twitter bio mentions God, here's an experiment try to conduct yourself as if God is reading your tweets. All right. What's he saying? He's saying some of you are Christians, saying that you're Christians, but look at what you're saying. Look at how you're interacting in the public space. You know that God actually sees what you put on Facebook, right? On Twitter. Like he, he sees all of that. Peter says we're to live with integrity. So what does that mean for you and I? How does that inform us as the people of God we're called to live as a people of hope we're called to point people to a better future a better way of life a different way to live living God's way And so this morning i want us to consider two distinct ways that we are called to live with integrity and hope to live differently and the first is that we have to properly deal with our desires properly deal with our desires. Look at verse 11. Peter writes, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Remember, Peter is writing to these new Christians in what is now modern-day Turkey, they're in new places. This new faith of theirs is telling them that they're part of God's kingdom. They're residents of God's kingdom. But they're also residents of a town, of a community, of a world around them. And as they encounter these new neighbors, you can imagine them having conversations with these neighbors. And as these neighbors are getting to know them, they're asking, so, so what religion do you follow? What is this new God that you serve, that you worship? And here's what happened. One of the reasons that Christianity spread so rapidly in the ancient world was because these neighbors were actually seeing a different way to live. That there really was a new way to live. They never imagined that you could live in such a way. And so despite the persecution, the gospel spread rapidly. So what was it that people were seeing? What was it that these neighbors were seeing in these early Christians? And I think what Peter is saying is that they're seeing people living life with integrity and hope. And Peter starts by asking us all to properly evaluate and deal with our desires. Think about this. Uh, Many of us perhaps are tempted to think that what governs our decisions in life are our minds. That if we can just think rightly and think well enough about the decisions, we'll make all the good decisions, right? We won't make any bad ones. But I think if we begin to kind of dig a little deeper, go underneath the surface, what we'll begin to find is that our decisions aren't governed by our minds most of the time. What are they governed by? Our desires. For instance, I'm a young parent. There's many young parents here at this church as I'm learning. Right? Um, my mind tells me uh, this. And I'm, I'm saying this uh, from personal experience, but I know this is not um, only my experience. Uh, so if this is true of you, uh, there's this thing that children do. I don't know if you've ever seen it before. Uh, but they act irrationally sometimes they uh, especially when they want something i don't know if you've ever encountered that before Have you ever heard of that now my mind tells me that when this is happening that the right thing to do is to hold fast to the position right the, the agreed upon plan right that's what i know is right and in the long term i know that's right for me it's right for them right but what do i really want well, what's the desire I just want them to stop crying, right? I just want the situation to resolve and not a scene to not happen in front of all of us, right? That's my desire. And so, what do we do? I said we there, not I, because I know we all do this. Our desires win, and we give in. We do, it's just easier. Desires are powerful. And not all desires are wrong. We have many God-given desires. What the psalmist writes in Psalm 37, he says, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord and he will what? Give you the desires of your heart. But what Peter is addressing is not the desires that lead us closer to the heart of God, he's talking about these desires that actually lead us further away from God. These sinful desires that often are brought about when we try to take control of our own lives to determine for ourselves what is good and what is true and what is beautiful. And that is something that humans, we humans have been doing from the very beginning when sin entered into the world. But Peter also says, when we abstain from these sinful desires, when we begin to not give in to them, not only do we benefit ourselves, but something else happens. We begin to actually benefit our neighbors. Look at verse 12 with me. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong... They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now, I want you to really think about this verse. It's the verse of the week for us, and so I hope you'll take it maybe each day, pray through it, meditate on it this week because this verse is so important. As Christians, you and I are being asked to live in a way, in such a way, that causes the non-Christians around us to stop and take notice. To live in such a way that those who are around us who don't believe will stop and take notice. Peter says that when we live like this, not only does that other person come to like you, perhaps, but they become actually interested in why you're living the way you're living that you're living differently. They're drawn to your integrity. So imagine for a moment that non-Christian in your life, whether it's a neighbor or maybe a family member, maybe it's a coworker. You imagine them coming to you and saying, you know, I don't believe what you believe. I, I can't get to that place yet. But if I were a Christian, if I were a Christian, I think I would want to live the way you're living. This seems to be right. This seems to be what I think it should look like. And so think about your workplace, wherever that may be. You know, living with integrity, living differently in the workplace is not only as a Christian meaning of sharing your faith in the workplace. It's about doing your work well. It's about trying to do your best in the vocation and the job that God has placed you in so that the people you encounter there say, you know, There's something different about them. They don't seem to be motivated by the same desires as everyone else. I'm not sure what it is, but there's something going on there. I wonder what it is. And so when we properly deal with our desires and we begin to live God's way with hope and integrity, this is the good news. We begin to attract people to us. That's what should be happening for the Christian. And the same, I really believe this, the same is true for our church. We have desires as a church. Part of what I'm doing in these early weeks of me being here is just trying to assess what those desires are. What is it that makes BBCC tick? What are the goals that we have set out? What do we want to be about? There are so many good things that we could participate in, but what are the things that we really desire to be about? And here's something I think that every church should think about in line with what Peter is saying. Let's ask this question. Now, this is not happening as a hypothetical. Say one day, for some reason, this church had to close its doors. Next week, we weren't here. What would the city and community say? Would they miss us? Would they say, you know, I don't believe everything that they believe. I'm not sure that I would call myself a Christian, but man, they were good for our city. They were good for our community. We missed them. We needed them here. That's the kind of church we want to be. We want to live and operate in a way that doesn't... um, bring about any kind of hostility or any kind of uh, pushback, but some way, somehow, God is using us as a church that's making people stop and take notice and thank God that we're here. That's being a people of hope. That's what we want, right? To be a church in our community that's known for loving God and loving people People who are full of hope. That's what we want to be. Living with integrity will do that. Robert Louis Stevenson was a famous writer from the UK. He wrote those great works, uh, Treasure Island and uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And there's this great story of him growing up in Scotland. In those days, of course, before electricity, street lamps lined all of the streets in those old cities. And as the story goes, one night he's at the window of their home and he's watching the lamplighter go about and open up the glass and light the lamp and he watches him go and he's just enthralled by it. And he turns to his parents and he says, look, there's a man who punches holes in the darkness. Look, mom, there's a man who punches holes in the darkness. There was a recent article in the Daily Mail in London on these lamplighters And before these lamplighters existed, London, if you think about it, was a dark city. This is what the article says. In the 18th century, it was a brave walker who ventured out without servants to lead the way with a lamp in one hand and a cudgel in the other. Those who could not afford to keep servants would pay a few coins to these wild street urchin kids, the sons of thieves, who would walk ahead of them carrying a stick with a rag dipped in tar and set alight. And those who couldn't afford to be guided in the dark just took their chances, or they rushed home before sunset. But then in 1807, to celebrate the birthday of King George III, Frederick Windsor, an engineer, lit the most spectacular of birthday candles. To the gasping crowds, he instantly illuminated a line of gas lamps, each one fed with gas pipes made from the barrels of old musket guns. And all Windsor had to do was apply a single spark to light up the whole street. And over the following decades, thousands of these gas lamps went up across London. And of course, many panicked about the new technology. There were some explosions as they were figuring out how to use it well. But for the first time in history, think about this, London was safe, relatively speaking. It was safe to walk at night. The Westminster Review wrote that the introduction of gas lamps, I love this, had done more to eliminate immorality and criminality on the streets than any number of church sermons. Light into the darkness. I love that image. And I love that phrase. More than anyone else, Christians are meant to be people who punch holes in the darkness. And we begin to do that when we properly deal with our desires and live with integrity and hope. But secondly, another distinct way that we live with integrity and hope, punch holes in the darkness, is by enduring suffering. Now some of you may be saying, all right, Phil, I was with you through all of that, but now we get to the suffering piece and I've, I'm, you've lost me. I don't think I can go with you here, but stay with me. Look at what Peter says in verse 20. But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. If you follow Jesus, we can then deduce, if you follow Jesus, part of following him is his example of suffering, which means part of the steps of following Jesus is to endure suffering. So how on earth do we suffer with integrity? How do we suffer well? When it comes to that very difficult moment in our lives, when We are suffering unjustly when something visits us that we are completely unprepared for. What is our natural human reaction? Well, if you're like me, my reaction has often been to lash out. To lash out at God first, and then, unfortunately, to lash out to those people around me that often are trying to help, to bring comfort. Oftentimes, we're trying to figure it out. Maybe we're trying to control the situation, see if we can make it better ourselves, or we're just avoiding it all together. But I think you know, I've learned this, that all of those reactions fall short. They do. Suffering with integrity is this. It is to come to deeply trust God suffering with integrity is to deeply trust God that he sees what we can't see and that he loves us. That he sees what we can't see and that he loves us. And when we endure suffering that way, instead of being overwhelmed by bitterness, what happens? We begin to be reignited with hope. And let me tell you, perhaps more than any other way, when it comes to the people around us, Who do not believe the way that we endure suffering speaks to the hope that we have. Where that person will say, wow, even in that, even facing that, look how they live. They live so differently. How is it possible? Some of you uh, know our daughter Jane, uh, who's three years old. She was born with Down syndrome. And she was also born with a rather significant hole in her heart. And we were hoping that as she grew, um, that that hole would begin to close on its own, as it often does with typical kids. But when she got to be about six months old, um, it just didn't look like that was going to happen in time. And so we made the decision along with uh, our doctors to, to intervene and uh, um, plan for open-heart surgery, which on a six-month-old child is something that is just completely overwhelming. You know, to have surgery on a heart that's maybe the size of a nickel. It's just amazing to think about. And they do, of course, a lot to repair you of what that's going to be like and what it's going to look like on the other side when you see her in recovery. But one of the moments that I'll never forget is that morning when we arrived early and she's in this you know, beautiful little hospital gown that we bought for her. And as it's time to go to surgery, we're walking down these long corridors, of course, and it seems like there's an army of nurses and doctors behind us, and I'm holding her. And we're walking along, and then, of course, we get to the double doors. And you can't go past the double doors. At that moment, you have to hand her over. And so we hand her over. And you realize, then and there, that you're helpless. There's nothing you can do. You were confronted with your inability to help, and we were confronted with her frailty also. And so we stayed behind, and we watched as they all went through, and we tried to peer through the windows for a few minutes, and then we went on to the waiting room. This is Jane here with Jenny shortly after her surgery. Where she was going, we could not follow The stopping of the heart, the bypass machine, the transfusions, we could not be a part of any of that. We could only go so far. The double doors kept us from going further. You know how we endure suffering with integrity? We endure it by believing that when we are overwhelmed, that when we are helpless, we have a God who has gone through the double doors for us that's pushed through. A God who has come to us in Jesus to do something about our problems of sin and death, who lived a perfect life to show us the way that God did intend for us to live. And we have a savior who went to suffer on the cross where Peter says in our passage in verse 23 that he did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he suffered, He left his case in the hands of God who always judges fairly. How wonderful is that? I love that. He left his case in the hands of God. And verse 24, he personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin. And here's the key, live for what is right. By his wounds, you are healed. What are you and I healed of? Well, we're healed of that constant struggle with our sinful desires and sin. We are healed of that fear of death that can overwhelm us. And because of the resurrection of Jesus, that he is no longer dead, he conquers death so that, as Peter says, we can now live dead to sin and to live for what is right. In other words, so that we can live differently that we can live with integrity so that we can become the kind of people that the world needs and that we can become the kind of church that this community needs. We become people who punch holes in the darkness. And you see, if it's not that way, if it's left to you or I alone, then what happens? Then hope as we've seen just in the past few days as we watch the news. If it's left to us, then hope begins to erode inch by inch by inch until one day we wake up and we realize we don't have hope anymore. But when we live with integrity, believing that we have a future that is secure, with a new identity as children of God that allows us, because we're accepted by Him, to live rightly with our desires and proper order, even that we can live differently when we have to endure suffering, then that's when we truly become the people of God that the world needs. Because here's the thing. I'd venture to offer this to you and I think you know that it's true. That many of our neighbors, right, people who are looking at us, that are watching us, maybe some of you here that are visiting this morning and you're skeptical about all of this. Many people are not looking for the Christian to point out all of the ways that they're living wrongly and the Christian is living rightly. And unfortunately, that argument loses a lot of weight anyways when our lives don't match what we're saying should be the right kind of living. But what they want to see and what I think they need to hear Is this that what makes us strive to live differently is that Jesus has done it all for us? That He Himself has lived rightly for you and for me? And that we are fully accepted and embraced in Him? That is the good news of the gospel. And if that is all true, if it's true, then of course we're going to live differently. If that's true, we have to live differently in response to it. So here's where I want to leave us this morning. It's this great quote from an author I've been reading lately, Paul Waddell. And he says this, Where are we summoned to be more imaginative and faithful as a church in order to serve the world around us? Where are you summoned? Where are you called by God to think more imaginatively, more creatively about how you are going to be a person of hope, living with integrity in the world around you? This past few weeks, as I've been getting to know this church, there are so many opportunities for you to do that here. So many great things that we are a part of, whether it's Children's Impact Network, Voice of the Martyrs, the other local ministries, serving one another here, you can do that. There are opportunities for you to be a person of hope living with integrity here. But what about you personally as you leave today and you go out into the workplace tomorrow? You go back to your neighborhoods. What will it mean for you to think creatively and imaginatively about how you can live with integrity and hope in such a way that at some point That other person is going to come up to you and say, "I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is, but there is something different about you." In that moment, we know it is nothing about us. It is all about what Jesus has done for us. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that as we think this morning and meditate on Your Word, that we would do the hard work of properly ordering our desires. Or some of us perhaps may have some difficult questions that needed to be asked. But God, we do that knowing that what we uncover there is not a place that you don't know about or that we should keep from you, that you love us, that you embrace us. You move us forward to receive your grace and to live on with hope and with integrity. And God, even as some of us face suffering as we endure it, would you give us a vision of that, a vision for that, doesn't fill us with bitterness, begins to rekindle hope inside of us, so that as we encounter those around us, they would look at our good deeds, they would look at our lives, and they would give glory to you for what they see. May that be true. We thank you and ask all these things. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.